FoundItemClothing.com, a source of your favorite screen-accurate shirts from your favorite TV shows and film. FoundItemClothing.com and BunnySlippers.com. Cool novelties to keep your feet warm. Thank you for joining People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, which is also brought to you by awesome donations by our awesome listeners. Go to the pgttcm.com and click the donate button or pgttcm.podbean.com. Again, click the donate button. And uh, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll tell people about it. Hear your name on the podcast. We will be talking about ghoulish stuff again. Kind of a return to a past episode about ghouly things and people who eat the flesh. We're going to be talking about Mordigan, the god of the ghouls, the charnel god, and of course we will also be talking about Chainsaw Confidential. I've been meaning to talk about this book for a while now. I was supposed to talk about it in an episode that I ended up talking about Martian Migraine Press's um, Lovecraftian uh, erotica uh, priestess. So you can go back and check out that episode. That episode was supposed to have Chainsaw Confidential, but I'm doing it in this episode. So sit back, listen to some stuff about monsters that eat the human flesh and humans that, you know, well, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. All right. People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos starts now. Chainsaw Confidential, How We Made the World's Most Notorious Horror Film, was a nonfiction book written by actor Gunnar Hansen, who's best known for portraying Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, a film that came out in 1974. Book came out in 2013 through Chronicle Books, and a few months back, I was lucky enough to get a copy of it from Chronicle Books themselves. It covers the making of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, as well as its release, reception, and marketing. goes into depth about how uh, Hansen was involved with it, uh, his early stories of the development of the film, and meeting the director, Toby Hooper, and a little bit about his time spent learning how to become Leatherface by... I don't know if it was working or volunteering at a home for the uh, cognitively impaired, but he realized that once no one noticed that it was him and just assumed that he was one of the people who lived there, he knew that he had uh, the basics for what he wanted Leatherface to be. It's it's a pretty good book. I highly recommend it, um, as do the folks at Dread Central. They gave the book five out of five blades, stating that it should be on every Texas Chainsaw Massacre fan's bookshelf. I'm going to go a step further. If you're a filmmaker, if you're a young actor, if you're a creative type, Mr. Hansen went through the creative process on how stuff is done and kind of lets you in on the fact that it's not just a director who comes up with all these great ideas and casts it out into the world. It's a collaborative piece. It's 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 everyone. It's the writers. It's the costumers. It's the actors. It's it's the weather. It's local law enforcement. It's everything in your environment goes to help you create the film, the story, the album, the podcast, anything that you're doing. That's that's where it's coming from. It's it's not just the idea of the concept of like, oh, I'm gonna take a basic elements of like Ed Gein and stuff like that and mix in a bit of America's fear of hillbillies in the backwoods road trips smash that all stuff together I mean that's that that was the basic the basic beginnings of it but I don't know I I feel like in Hansen's book you really get an idea of how the small independent film comes together from just one person's basic ideas and then just expands and the actors with their input and limitations based on the heat and how things are going. I mean, I've personally been a part of small productions and 
those were all elements that you know we had to deal with and it was it's not just horror it's 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 a uh, film projects in general and audio projects and as i've said uh, all kinds of things books poetry i i really recommend it it's a really well written book so the people that uh mr hansen had help him write it did a really good job if he wrote it all by himself uh, uh, talented he was a, he was a talented talented man not just a great actor but also a great performer and a great writer i highly recommend chainsaw confidential it's a great book that really kind of tells you about how fun and awful it was to film one of the most notorious horror films of the 20th century check it out i if, if i had like a one out of five things i would give it definitely a 4.5 and say that it's a six out of five for anyone who loves Texas Chainsaw Massacre. All right. The Charnel God by Clark Ashton Smith. Written by Clark Ashton Smith, the year 1934. And it first appeared in Weird Tales, March 1934. Edited by Farnsworth Wright. Morgan is the god of Zalba Sayer, said the innkeeper with unculous solemnity. He has been the god for years that are lost to man's memory and shadow deeper than the subterranes of his black temple. There is no other god in Zalba Sayer, and all who die within the walls of the central city are sacrificed to Morgan, even the kings and the optimates at death are delivered into the hands of his muffled priests. It is the law and the custom. A little while, and the priests will come for your bride. But Eliath is not dead, protested the young Pharaoh for the third or fourth time, in piteous desperation. Her malady is one that assumes the lying likeness of death. Twice before, she has lain insensible, with a pallor on her cheeks and a stillness in her very blood that could hardly be distinguished from those of the tomb, and twice she has wakened after an interim of days. The innkeeper peered with an air of ponderous unbelief at the girl who lay white and motionless as a moan lily on the bed in a poorly furnished attic chamber. In that case, you should not have brought her to Zalba Sayer, he averted in a tone of owlish irony. The physician has pronounced her dead, and her death has been reported to the priests. She must go to the temples of Mordagin. But we are outlanders, guests of a night. We come from the land of Zirlak, far in the north, and this morning we should have gone on through to Tassoon, toward Farad the capital of Yoros, which lies near the southern sea. Surely your god could have no claim upon Aliath, even if she were truly dead. All who die in Zalbasair are property of Mordigan, insisted the taverner sententiously. Outlanders are not exempt. The dark maw of his temple yawns eternally, and no man, child, nor woman throughout the years has evaded its yawning. All mortal flesh must become in due time the provander of the god. Ferium shuddered at the oily and pretentious declaration. Dimly I have heard of Mordigan, as a legend that travelers tell in Zylac, he admitted, but I had forgotten the name of his city. And Elioth and I came ignorantly to Zalba Sair. Even had I known, I should have doubted the terrible custom which you inform me. Which manner of deity is this? Who imitates the hyena and the vulture? Surely he is no god but a ghoul. Take heed, lest you utter blasphemy, admonished the innkeeper. Mordigan is old and omnipotent as death. He was worshipped in former continents before the lifting of the Zothique from out of the sea. Through him, we are saved from corruption and the worm. Even as the people of other places devote their dead to the consuming flame, so we of Zalba Sayir deliver ours to the god, awful in the fane. A place of terror, an obscure chateau, untrod by the sun. 
into which the dead are borne by his priests, and are laid on a vast table of stone to await his coming from the nether vault in which he dwells. No living men other than the priests have ever beheld him, and the faces of the priests are hidden behind masks of silver, and even their hands are shrouded, that man may not gaze on them that have seen Mordigan. But there is a king in Zalbasair, is there not? I shall appeal to him against this heinous and horrible injustice. Surely he will heed me. Fenequa is the king, but he could not help you even if he wished. Your appeal will not even be heard. Mordigan is above all kings, and his law is sacred. Hark, for already the priests come. Farlam sick in the heart with the charnel terror and cruelty of the doom that impended for his girlish wife in the unknown city of nightmare, heard an evil stealthy creaking on the stairs that led to the attic of the inn. The sound drew nearer with inhuman rapidity, and four strange figures came into the room, heavily garbed in funeral purple, and wearing huge masks of silver graven in the likeness of skulls. It was impossible to surmise their actual appearance, for even as the taverner had hinted, their very hands were concealed by fingerless gloves, and the purple gowns came down in loose folds that trailed about their feet like unwinding cerecloths. There was a horror about them, of which the macabre masks were only a lesser element, a horror that lay partially in their unnatural, crouching attitudes, and their beast-like agility for which they moved unhampered the cumbrous inhabitants. Among them they carried a curious beer, made from interwoven strips of leather and with monstrous bones that served for the frame of handles. The leather was greasy and blackened as if it was from long years of mortuary use. Without speaking to Faram or the innkeeper, and with no delay or formality of any sort, they advanced towards the bed on which Alath, Aleth, Aleth was lying. Undetermined by their more than formidable aspect, and wholly distraught with grief and anger, Ferrum drew from his girdle a short knife, the only weapon he possessed. Disregarding the menatory cry of the taverner, he rushed wildly upon the muffled figures. He was quick and muscular, and moreover he was clad in light, loose-fitting raiment, such as would seemingly gave him a brief advantage. The priests had turned their backs upon him, but as if they had foreseen his every action. Two of them wheeled about with the swiftness of tigers, dropping the handles of the bone that they carried. One of them struck the knife from Pharaoh's hand with a movement that the eye could barely follow, its snarky darting. They both assailed him, beating him back with terrible flailing blows of their shrouded arms, and hurling half across the room into an empty corner. Stunned by his fall, he lay senseless for a term of minutes, recovering glazedly with eyes that burned as he opened them. He beheld the fact that a stout taverner stooping above him like a tallow-covered moon, the thought of Eliath, more sharp than the thrust of a dagger, brought him back to agonizing consciousness. Fearfully, he scanned the shadowy room and saw that the cemented priests were gone, that the bed was vacant. He heard the aunt hung and the sepulchral croaking of the taverner. The priests of Mortigan are merciful. They make allowance for the frenzied distraction of the newly bereaved. It is well for you that they are compassionate and considerate of mortal weakness. Ferrum sprang erect, as if his bruised and aching body were scorched by a sudden fire, pausing only to retire his knife, which still lay in the middle of the room. He started towards the door. He was stopped by the hand of the hostler, clutching greasily at the shoulder. Beware, lest you exceed the bounds of the mercy of Mortigan. It is ill thing to follow his priests, and a worse thing to intrude upon the deathly and sacred gloom of his temple. Ferrum scarcely heard the admonition. He wrenched himself hastily away from the odious fingers and turned to go. But again the hand clutched him. At least pay me the money that you owe me for food and lodging ere you depart. 
demanded the innkeeper. Also, there is the matter of the physician's fee, which I can settle for you, if you entrust me with the proper sum. Pay now, for there is no surety that you will return. Ferrum drew out the purse that contained his entirely worldly wealth and filled the greedy-cupped palm before him with coins that he did not pause to count. With no parting word or backward glance, he descended the moldy and musty stairs of the worm-eaten hostelry. As if spurned by an incubus, he went out into the gloomy serpentine streets of Zalbasair. Perhaps the city differed a little from others, except from being older and darker, but to Pharaoh, in his extremity of anguish, the ways that he followed were like subterranean corridors that led only to some profound and monstrous channel. The sun had risen above the overjutting houses, but it seemed to him that there was no light other than the lost and doleful glimmering such as might descend into the mortuary depths. The people, it may seem, were much like other people, but he saw them under a malfic aspect, as if they were ghouls and demons that went to and fro on the ghastly errands of a necropolis. Bitterly, in the distraction, he recalled the previous evening where he had entered Zulba Sayir at twilight with Eliath. The girl riding on the one dromedary that had survived their passage from the northern desert, and he walking beside her, weary but content, with the rosy purple of an afterglow upon its walls and cupolas, and the deepening golden eyes of its lit windows. The place had seemed a fair and nameless city of dreams, and they planned to rest here for a day or two before resuming their long, arduous journey to Farad and Yaros. This journey had been undertaken only through necessity. Ferrum, an impoverished youth of noble blood, had been exiled because of the political and religious tenets of his family, which were not in accord of those of the reigning emperor, Selapos. Taking his newly wedded wife, Ferrum set out for Yaros, where certain allied branches of the house to which he belonged had already established themselves, and would give him a fraternal welcome. They had traveled with a large caravan of merchants, going directly southward to Tassoon, beyond the borders of Zylac amid the red sands of the Siliotin Waste. The caravan had been attacked by robbers, who had slain many of its members and dispersed with the rest. Pharaoh and his bride, escaping with their dromedaries, found themselves lost and alone in the desert, and failing to regain the road towards Tatsun, had already inadvertently another track, leading to Zalba Sair, a walled metropolis on the southwestern verge of the Waste which their itinerary had not included. Entering Zuba Sayer, the couple had repaired for reasons of economy to a tavern in the humbler quarter. During the night, Eliath had been overcome by the third seizure of a cataleptic malady to which she was liable. The earlier seizure, occurring before her marriage to Feriam, had been recognized in their true character by the physicians of Zylac, who had palliated by skillful treatment. It was hoped that the malady would not reoccur. The third attack, no doubt, had been included by the fatigues and hardships of the journey. Ferium had felt sure that Eliath would recover, but a doctor in Zalba Sair, hastily summoned by the innkeeper, had insisted that she was actually dead and in obedience to the strange law of the city, had reported her without delay to the priests of Mordigan. The frantic protests of the husband had been utterly ignored. There was, it seemed, a diabolic fatality about the whole train of circumstances through which Eliath, still living, though which had outward aspect of the tomb within her illness involved, had fallen into the grasp of the devotees of the charnel god. Ferrium pondered this fatality almost to madness, as he strode with furious aimless haste among the eternally winding and crowded streets. To the cheerless information he received from the taverner, he added, as he went on, more and more of the tardily remembered legends of which that he had heard in Zylac. Ill and dubious, indeed, was the renown of Zel. Ba Sayir, and as he marveled that he should have forgotten it, 
and cursed himself with black curses for temporary but fatal forgetfulness. Better would it have been if he and Eliath had perished in the desert rather than enter the wide gates that stood always open, gaping for their prey, as was the custom of Zulba Sayir. The city was a mart of trade, where outland travelers came, but did not care to linger because of the repulsive cult of Mortigan, the invisible eater of the dead, who was believed to share his provander with shrouded priests. It was said that the bodies lay for days in the dark temples and were not devoured till corruption had begun. And people whispered of fouler things than necrophagism, of blasphemous rites that were solemnized in the ghoul-ridden vaults, and nameless uses for which the dead were put before Mordigan claimed them. In all outlying places, the fate of those who died and Zulba Sayir were dreadful byword and malediction. But to those people of that city, reared in the faith of the ghoulish god, it was merely the usual and expected mode of mortuary disposal. Tombs, graves, catacombs, funeral pyres, and other such nuisances were rendered needless by this highly utilitarian deity very almost surprised to see the people of the city going about their common business of life. Potters were passing with the bales of household goods upon their shoulders. Merchants were squatting on the shops like other merchants. Buyers and sellers chafed loudly in the public bazaars. Women laughed and chattered in the doorways only by their voluminous robes of red, black, and violet and their strange, uncouth accents. Was he able to distinguish the men of Zul Ba Sayir from those who were outlanders like himself? The murk of nightmare began to lift from his impressions, and gradually he went on. The spectacle of everyday humanity all about him helped to calm a little of his wild distraction and desperation. Nothing could dissipate the horror of his loss and the abominable fate that threatened Eliath. But now, with a cool logic born of the cruel exigence, he began to consider the apparently hopeless problem of rescuing her from the ghoul god's temple. He composed his features and constrained his febrile pacing to an idle saunter so that none might guess the preoccupations that racked him inwardly. Pretending to be interested in the wares of a seller of men's apparel, he drew the dealer into a converse regarding Zulba Sayir and its customs and made such inquiries as a traveler from far lands might make. The dealer was talkative, and Inferium, Inferium soon learned from him the location of the Temple of Mortigan, which stood at the city's core. He also learned that the temple was open at all hours, and that people were free to come and go within its precincts. There were, however, no rituals of worship other than certain private rites that were celebrated by the priesthood. Few cared to enter the fane because of a superstition that any living person who intruded upon the gloom would return to it shortly after as a provender of the god. Mordigan, it seemed, was a benign deity in the eyes of the inhabitants of Zaul Ba Sayir. Curiously enough, no definite personal attributes were ascribed to him. He was, so to speak, an impersonal force akin to the elements, a consuming and cleansing power like fire. His hierophants were equally mysterious. They lived at the temple and emerged from it only in execution of their funeral duties. No one knew the manner of their recruiting, and many believed that they were both male and female, thus renewing their numbers from generation to generation with, with no ulterior commerce. Others thought they were not human beings at all, but a order of subterranean earth entities who lived for ever, and fed upon corpses like their god himself. Though this latter belief of later years, a minor heresy, had arisen, some holding that Mortigan was a mere heretic figment, and that the priests were sole devourers of the dead, the dealer quoting this heresy, made haste to disavow it with pious reprobation. Varian chatted for a while on other topics, and then continued his progress through the city, going as fortrightly towards the temple as the obliquely running thoroughfares would permit. He had formed no conscious plan, 
but desired to reconnoitre the vicinage, and that which the garment dealer had told him, the one reassuring detail was the openness of the fane and the accessibility of all who dared to enter. The rarity of visitors, however, made Ferrum conspicuous, and he wished above all to avoid attention. On the other hand, any effort to remove bodies from the temple was seemingly unheard of, a thing audacious beyond the dreams of the people of Zul Ba Sair, even though the very boldness of his design might avoid suspicion and succeed in rescuing Eliath. The streets that he followed began to tend downward, and were narrower, dimmer, and more tortuous than he had yet traversed. And he thought for a while that he had lost his way, and he was about to ask the passerby to direct him, when four of the priests of Mordigan began bearing one of the curious litter-like bears of bone and leather, emerged from an ancient alley just before him. The bier was occupied by the body of a girl, and for a moment of conclusive shock, an agitation that left him trembling, Faram thought the girl was Aliath. Looking again, he saw his mistake. The gown that the girl wore was simple and made of some rare exotic stuff. Her features, though pale as those of Eliath, were crowned with curls like the petals of heavy black poppies. Her beauty was warm and voluptuous even in death, differed from the blonde pureness of Eliath as tropic lilies different from Narcissi. Quietly and maintaining a discreet interval, Ferrum followed the solely shrouded figures and their lovely burden. He saw that the people made way for the passage of beer with odd, unquestioning altricity, and the loud voices of the hucksters and the chafers were hushed as the priests went by. Overhearing a murmur of conversation between two of the townsfolk, he learned that the dead girl was Archtelia, daughter of Quaros, a high noble and magistrate of Zulba Sair. She had died quickly and very mysteriously, from a cause unknown to the physicians, which had not marred or wasted her beauty in the least. There were those who held that an undetectable poison rather than disease had been the agency of death, and other deemed her a victim of malefic sorcery. The priest went on, and, and Ferrum kept them in sight as well as he could in the blind tangle of streets. The way they steepened without affording any clear prospect of the levels below, and the houses seemed to crowd more closely as if huddling back from a precipice. Finally, the youth emerged behind his macabre guides in a sort of circular hollow at the city's heart, where the Temple of Mordigan loomed alone and separate amid pavements of sad onyx, and the funerary cedars whose green had blackened as if the underparting charnel shadows bequeathed by dead ages. The edifice was built of a strange stone, hued with the blackish purple of carnal decay, a stone that refused the ardent luster of noon and the prodigal of dawn or sunset glory. It was low and windowless, having the form of a monstrous mausoleum. Its portals yawned spectorally in the gloom of the cedars. Ferrum watched the priests as they vanished within the portals, carrying the girl Artelia like phantoms who bear a phantom burden. The broad area of pavement between the recoiling houses and the temple were now deserted, but he did not venture to cross it in the blare of the betraying daylight. Circling the area, he saw that there were several other entrances to the Great Fane, all open and unguarded. There was no sign of activity about the place. But he shuddered at the thought of which was hidden within the walls, even as the feasting of worms is hidden in the marble tomb. Like a vomiting of charnels, the abominations of which he had heard rose up before him in the sunlight, and again grew close to the madness, knowing that Eliath must lie among the dead in the temple with the foul umbrage of those things upon her, and that he, consumed with unremitting frenzy, must wait for the favorable shrouding of darkness before he can execute his nebulous, doubtful plan of rescue. In the meanwhile, she might awake and perish from the mortal horror of her surroundings, or even worse than this might befall, if the whispered tales were true. Abon Thaw 
sorcerer and necromancer, was felicitating himself on the bargain he had made with the priests of Morrigan. He felt perhaps, justly, that no one less clever than he could have convinced and executed the various procedures that had made possible this bargain, through which Artilia, daughter of proud Quaros, would become his unquestioning slave. No other lover, he told himself, could have been resourceful enough to obtain a desired woman in this fashion. Octilia, betrothed to Alos, a young noble of the city, who is seemingly beyond the aspiration of a sorcerer. Evanthar, however, was no common hedge wizard, but an adept of long standing in the most awful and profound arcana of the black arts. He knew the spells that could kill more quickly and surely than knife or poison. And at a distance, he knew also the darker spells in which the dead could be reanimated. Even after years of ages of decay, he had slain Artilia in a manner that none could detect, with a rare and subtle involtuation that had left no mark, and her body now lay among the dead in Mordigan's temple. Tonight, with the tactic convenience of the terrible shrouded priests, he would bring her back to life. Abanthar was not native to Zul Ba Sair, but it had come many years before from the infamous half-mystic Isle of Sotar, lying somewhere east of the huge continent of Zothik. Like a sleek young vulture, he had established himself in the very shadow of the Charnel Fane, and had prospered taking to himself pupils and assistants. His dealings with the priests were long and extensive, and the bargain he had just made was far from being the first of its kind. They had allowed him the temporary use of bodies claimed by Mordigan, stipulating only that these bodies should not be removed from the temple during the course of any of his experiments in necromancy. Since the privilege was slightly irregular from their viewpoint, he had found it necessary to bribe them, not, however, with gold, but with the promise of a liberal perseverance of matters more sinister and corruptible than gold. The arrangement had been satisfactory enough for all concerned. Cadavers had poured into the temple with much more than their usual abundance ever since the coming of the sorcerer. The god had not lacked for provander and Ebonthar had never lacked for subjects on which to employ his more baleful spells. On the whole, Abontha was not ill-pleased with himself. He reflected, moreover, that aside from his mastery of magic and his slightful ingenuity, he was about to manifest a well-nigh unexampled courage. He had planned a robbery that would amount to dire sacrilege, the removal of the reanimated body of Octelia from the temple. Such robberies, either of animate or exanimate corpses, had the penalty attached to them, were a matter of legend only, for none had occurred in recent ages. Trice terrible, according to common belief, was the doom of those who had tried and failed. The necromancer was not blind to the risks of his enterprise, nor, on the other hand, was he deterred or intimidated by them. His two assistants, Nagali and Vermba Tsilf, appraised of his intention, had made with all due privity the necessary preparations for their flight from Zulba Sair. The strong passion that the sorcerer had conceived of Octilia was not his only motive. Perhaps in removing from the city, he was desirous of change, for he had grown a little weary of the odd laws that really served to restrict his necromantic practices. While facilitating them in a sense, he planned to travel southward and establish himself in one of the cities of Tassoon, an empire famous for the number of antiquity of its mummies. It was now sunset time. Five dromedaries, bred for racing, waited in the inner courtyard of Abontha's house, a high and mouldering mansion that seemed to lean forward upon the open, circular area belonging to the temple. One of the dromedaries would carry a bale containing the sorcerer's most valuable books, manuscripts, and, and other impedimenta of magic. 
its fellows would bear Abnontha, the two assistants, and Octelia. Nagai and, and Vimbra appeared before their master to tell him that all was made ready. Both were much younger than Abontha, but like himself, were outlanders in Zulba Sayer. They came of the swart and narrow-eyed people of Nat, and the isle that was little less infamous than Sulta. It is well, said the necromancer, as they stood before him with lowered eyes after making their announcement. We have only to await the favorable hour, midway between the sunset and the moonrise, when the priests are at their supper at the nether aditum. We will enter the temple and perform that which must be done for the rising of Octelia. They feed well tonight, for I know that many of the dead grow right on the great table in the upper sanctuary, and it might be that Mordigan feeds also. None will come to watch us at our doings. But master, said Nargai, shivering a little beneath the robe of Nacarit Red, is it wise after all to do this thing? Must you take the girl from the temple? Always, ere this, you have contented yourself with the brief loan that the priests allow, and have rendered back the dead in the required state of examination. Truly, it is well to violate the law of the god. Men say that the wrath of Mordigan, though seldom lucid, is more dreadful than the wrath of all other deities. For this matter, none has dared to defraud him in latter years, or attempt to removal of any corpses from his fane. Long ago, it is told a high noble of the city bore hence the cadaver of a woman he had loved, and fled with it into the desert. But the priests pursued him, running more swiftly than jackals, and the fate that overtook him is a thing whereof legends whisper but dimly. I fear neither Nordigan nor his creatures, said Abon Tha, with a solemn vainglory of his voice. My dromedaries can outrun the priests, even granting that the priests are not men at all but ghouls, as some say, and there is a small likelihood that they will follow us. After their feasting tonight, they will sleep like gourd vultures. The morrow will find us far on the road to Tsatsun, where they awake. The master is right, said Velba. We have nothing to fear. But they say... But they say Morrigan does not sleep, insisted Nagai, and that he watches all things externally from his black vault beneath the temple. So I have heard, said Abontha, with a dry and learned air. But I have considered such beliefs are mere superstition. There is nothing to confirm them in the real nature of corpse-eating entities. So far, I have never beheld Mordigan, either sleeping or awake. But in all likelihood, he is merely a common ghoul. I know these demons and their habits. They differ from hyenas only through their monstrous size and shape, and their immortality. Still, I must deem it an ill thing to cheat Mordigan, muttered Nagai underneath his breath. The words were caught by the quick ears of Abontha. Nay! There is no question of cheating. Well, I have served Mordigan and his priesthood, and aptly I have lauded the black table. Also, I shall keep, in a sense, the bargain I have made concerning Arcilia, the providing of a new cadaver in return of my necromantic privilege. Tomorrow, the youth Alos, the betrothed of Octelia, will lie in her place among the dead. Go now, and leave me, for I must devise the inward indulation that will rot the heart of Alos, like a worm that awakens at the core of a fruit. Deferium, fevered and distraught, it seemed that the cloudless day went with the sluggishness of a corpse-clogged river. Unable to calm his agitation, he wandered aimlessly through the thronged bazaars, till the western towers grew dark on a heaven of saffron flame. And the twilight rose like a gray and curdling sea among the houses. Then he returned to the inn where Eliath had been stricken and claimed the dromedary which he had left in the tavern stables. Riding the animal through the dim thoroughfares, lit only by the covert gleam of lamps 
or tapers from half-crossed windows. He found his way once more to the city center. The dusk had thickened into darkness when he came to the open area surrounding Mordigan's temple. The windows of mansions fronting the area were shut in likeness as dead eyes. The fane itself, a colossal bulk of doom, was rayless as any mausoleum beneath the gathering stars. No one, it seemed, was abroad, and though the quietude was favorable for his project, Ferium shivered with a chill of deadly menace and desolation. The hoofs of his camel rang on the pavement with a startling, preternatural clangor, as though that the ears of hidden ghouls listening alertly beneath the silence must surely have heard them. However, there was no stirring of life in this sepulchral gloom. Reaching the shelter of one of the thick groups of ancient cedars, he dismounted and tied the dromedary to a low-growing branch. Keeping among the trees like a shadow among shadows, he approached the temple with infinite wariness and circled it slowly, finding its four doorways, which corresponded to the four quarters of the earth, were all wide open, deserted, and equally dark. Returning at length to the eastern side, on which he had tethered his camel, he emboldened himself to enter the blackly gaping portal. Crossing the threshold, he was engulfed instantly by a dead and clammy darkness, touched with the faint fetter of corruption and a smell as of charred bones and flesh. He thought that he was in a huge corridor, and feeling his way forward along the right-hand wall, he soon came to a sudden turn and saw a bluish glimmering far ahead, as if some central adytum where the hall ended. Massy columns profiled the enormous skulls. Two of them were sharing the burden of a human body which they carried in their arms. Tefarium, pushing in the shadowy hall, it appeared that the vague taint of putrescence upon their air grew stronger for a few instances after the figures had come and gone. They were not succeeded by any others, and the fane resumed its mausoleum stillness. But the youth waited for many minutes, doubtful and trepidant, before venturing to go on. An oppression of mortuary mystery thickened the air and stiffened him like some noisome effluvia of catacombs. His ears became intolerably acute, and he heard a dim humming, a sound of deep and viscid voices indistinguishably bent that appeared to issue from crypts beneath the temple. Stealing at length to the hall's end, he peered beyond into what was obviously the main sanctuary, a low and many-pillared room, whose vastness was but half revealed by the bluish fires that glowed and flickered, and numerous urn-like vessels bore aloft on slender stela. Ferrum hesitated upon the awful threshold, for the mingled odors of burnt and decaying flesh were heavier on the air as if he had drawn nearer to their sources, and the thin humming seemed to ascend from a dark stairwell in the floor beside the left-hand wall. But the room, to all appearance, was empty of life, and nothing stirred except the wavering lights and shadows. The watcher discerned that the outlines of a vast table in the center, carved from the same black stone as the building itself. Upon the table, half-lit by the flaming urns, or shrouded by the umbrage of the heavy columns, a number of people lay side by side, and Pharaoh knew that he had found the black altar of Mordigan, whereupon were disposed the bodies claimed by the god. A wild and stifling fear contended with a wilder hope of his bosom. Trembling, he went towards the table, and a cold clamminess wrought by the presence of the dead assailed him. The table was nearly thirty feet in length, and it rose waist height on a dozen mighty legs. Beginning at the nearer end, he passed along a row of corpses, peering fearfully into each upturned face, both sexes, many different ages, differing ranks were represented. Nobles and rich merchants were crowded by beggars and filthy rags. Some were newly dead, and others, it seemed, had lain there for days, and were beginning to show the marks of corruption. There were many gaps in the ordered row, suggesting that certain of the corpses had been removed. Pharaoh went on in a dim light, searching for the loved features of Eliath. At last, 
first. When he was nearing the further end, he began to fear that she was not among them. He found her. With the cryptic pallor and stillness of her strange malady upon her, she lay unchanged on the chill stone. A great thankfulness was born in the heart of Ferrum, for he was sure that she was not dead, and that she had not been awakened at any time to the horrors of the temple. If he could bear her away from the hateful pureness of Zalbasair without detection, she would recover from her death-simulating sickness. Curiously, he noted that another woman lay beside Eliath. He recognized her as the beautiful Octilia, whose bearers he had followed almost to the portals of the Fane. He gave her no second glance, but stooped to lift Eliath in his arms. At the moment, he heard the murmur of low voices in the direction of the door which he had entered the sanctuary. Thinking some of the priests had returned, he dropped swiftly on hands and knees and crawled beneath the ponderous table, which afforded the only accessible hiding place. Retreating into the shadows beyond the glimmering shed from the lofty urns, he waited and looked out between the pillar-thick legs. The voices grew louder, and he saw the curiously sandaled feet of and shortish robes of three persons who approached the table of the dead and paused in the very spot where he himself had stood in a few instants before. Who they were, he could not surmise. But their garments of light and swarthy red were not the shroudings of Mordigan's priests. He was uncertain whether or not they had seen him, and crouching in a low space between the table, he plucked his dagger from its sheath. Now he was able to distinguish three voices, one solemn and unctuously imperative, one somewhat guttural and growling, and the other shrill and nasal. The accents were alien, differing from those men's of Zulba Sair, and the words were often strange to Ferrum. Also, much of the converse was inaudible. Here, at the end, said the solemn voice, be swift. We have no time to loiter. Yes, master, came the growling voice. But who is this other? Truly, she is very fair. A discussion seemed to take place in discreetly lowered tones. Apparently, the owner of the guttural voice was urging something that the two other opposed. The listener could distinguish only a word or two here or there. But he gathered that the name of the first two was Vembi, and the other who spoke in a nasal, shrilling voice was Nargai. At last, above the others, the grave accents of the man addressing only as the master were clearly audible. I do not altogether approve. It will delay our departure, and the two must ride on one dromedary. Take her, Vemba, if you can perform the necessary spells unaided. I have no time for a double incantation. It will be a good test for your proficiency. There was a mumbling as of thanks of acknowledgement from Vermba. Then the voice of the master, be quiet now or make haste. Tuferum wondered vaguely and uneasily as to the import of this colloquy. It seemed that two of these three men pressed closer to the table, as if stooping above the dead. He heard a rustling of cloth upon stone, and an instant later he saw that all three were departing among the columns and the stela in a direction opposite to that of which they had entered the sanctuary two of them carried burdens that glimmered palely and indistinctly in the shadows a black horror clutched at the heart of ferrum for all too clearly he surmised the nature of those burdens and the possible identity of one of them quickly he crawled forth from his hiding spot and saw that eliath had gone from the black table together with the girl octilia he saw the vanishing of shadowy figures in the gloom that zoned the chamber's western wall whether the abductors were ghouls or worse than ghouls he could not know but he followed swiftly forgetful of all caution in his concern for Eliath. Reaching the wall, he found the mouth of a corridor and plunged into it headlong. Somewhere in the gloom ahead, he saw a ruddy glimmering of light. Then he heard a sullen metallic grating, and the glimmer narrowed to a slit-like gleam, as if the door of the chamber from which it issued was being closed. Following the blind wall, he came to that slit of crimson light. A door of darkly tarnished bronze had been left ajar, and Pharaoh peered 
in on a weirdly unholy scene, illuminated by the blood-like flames that flared and soared unsteadily from high urns upborne upon sable pedestals. The room was full of a sensuous luxury that accorded strangely with the dull funeral stone of the Temple of Death. There were couches and carpets of superbly figured stuffs, vermilion, gold, azure, silver, and crown censers of unknown metals stood in the corners. A low table at the side was littered with curious bottles and occult appliances, such as might be used in medicine or sorcery. Eliath was lying on one of the couches, and near her, on a second couch, the body of the girl Octilia had been disposed. The abductors, whose faces Pharaoh now beheld for the first time, were busying themselves with singular preparations that mystified him prodigiously. His impulse was to invade the room, was repressed by a sort of wonder that held him enthralled and motionless. One of the three, a tall middle-aged man, who he had identified as the master, had assembled certain particular vessels among a small brazier and censer, and had set them on the floor beside Octilia. The second, a younger man with lecherously slitted eyes, had placed similar impedimenta before Elias. The third was also young and evil of aspect, merely stood and looked on with an apprehensive, uneasy air. Ferrum divined that the men were sorcerers when, a deftness born of long practice, they lit the censers and the braziers, and began simultaneously in the intonation of, rhythm of rhythmically measured words in a strange tongue, accompanied by the sprinkling at regular intervals of black oils, which fell with a great hissing on the coals of the braziers and sent up enormous clouds of pearly smoke, dark threads of vapor serpentine from the censers, interweaving them themselves, like veins through the dim misshapen figures as of ghostly giants that were formed by the lighter fumes. A reek of intolerably acrid balsams filled the chamber, assailing and troubling the senses of Ferium, till the scene wavered before him and took on a dreamlike vastness, a necotic distortion. The voices of the necromancers mounted the air as if some unholy paean, imperious, exigent, they seemed to implore that the consummation of hidden blasphemy, like thronging phantoms, writhing and swirling with malignant life, and vapors rose about the crouches on which lay the dead girl, and the girl who bore the outward likeness of death. Then, as the fumes were riven apart in their baleful seething, Ferrum saw that the pale figure of Eliath had stirred like a sleeper who awakens, that she had opened her eyes and was lifting a feeble hand from the gorgeous couch. The younger necromancer ceased his chanting on a sharply broken cadence, but then the solemn tones of the others still went on, and still there was a spell on the limbs and senses of Pharaoh, making it impossible for him to stir. Slowly, the vapors thinned like a root of dissolving phantoms. The watcher saw that the dead girl, Octilia, was rising to her feet like a sonambulist. The chanting of Abanta standing before her came sonorously to an end, and the awful silence that followed. Fariam heard a weak cry from Eliath, and then the jubilant growling of Vemba, who was stooping above her. Behold, O Abantha, my spells are swifter than yours, for she that I have chosen awakened before Arctilia. Fariam released from his thraldom, as if though the lifting of an evil enchantment he flung back the ponderous door of the darkened bronze that ground with protesting clangors on its hinges. His dagger drawn, he rushed into the room. Eliath, with her eyes wide with piteous bewilderment, turned towards him and made an ineffectual effort to arise from the couch. Octilia, mute and submissive before Abontha, appeared to heed nothing but the will of the necromancer. She was like a fair and soulless automaton. The sorcerer, turning as Pharaoh entered, sprang back with instant agility before his onset, and drew the short, cruelly crooked swords which they all carried. Nagai struck the knife from Pharaoh's fingers with a darting blow that shattered its thin blade at the hilt. 
and Vembra, his weapon swinging back in a vicious arc, would have killed the youth promptly if Abantha had not interfered and bade him stay. Faram, standing furiously but irresolute before the of the lifted swords, was aware of the darkly searching eyes of Abantha, like those of some nyctalopic bird of prey. I would know the meaning of this intrusion, said the necromancer. Truly, you are bold to enter the temple of Mordigan. I came here to find the girl who lies yonder, declared Pharaoh. She is Eliath. She is my wife, who is claimed unjustly by the god. But tell me, why have you brought her to this room from the table of Mordigan? What manner of men are you that raise up the dead as you have raised up this other woman? I am Abontha the necromancer, and these are my pupils, Nagai and Vembra. Give thanks to Vembra, for verily he has brought your wife from the Perchulis of the dead with a skill excelling that of his master. She awoke ere the incantation was finished. Pharaoh glared with implacable suspicion at Abontha. Eliath was not dead, but only in a trance, he averred. It was not your pupil's sorcery that awakened her. And verily, whether Eliath be dead or living is not a matter that should concern anyone but myself. Permit us to depart, for I wish to remove her from Zulba Sayir, in which we are only passing travelers. So speaking, he turned his back on the necromancers, went over to Eliath, who regarded him with dazed eyes, but uttered his name feebly as he clasped her in his arms. Now, this is a remarkable coincidence, purred Abnantha, and my pupils are also planning to depart from Zulba Sayir, and we start this very night. Perhaps you will honor us with your company. I thank you, said Faram curtly, but I am not sure that our roads lie together. Eliath and I will go towards Tassoon. Now, by the black altar of Mordigan, that is still a stranger coincidence, for Tassoon is also our destination. We take with us the resurrected girl, Octilia, whom I have deemed too fair for the charnel god and his ghouls. Ferium divined that the dark evil that lay behind the oily mocking speeches of the necromancer. Also, he saw the futurative and sinister sign that Abontha had made to his assistance. Weaponless, he could not give a formal assent to the sardonic proposal. He knew well that he would not be permitted to leave the temple alive, for the narrow eyes of Nargai and Vembra regarding him closely were alight with the red lust of murder. Gum! said Abantha, in a voice of imperious command. It is time to go. He returned to the figure of Arctilia and spoke in an unknown word. With vacant eyes and noctambulistic paces, she followed in his heels and stepped toward the open door. Ferium had helped Eliath to her feet and was whispering words of reassurance in an effort to lull the growing horror and confused alarm he saw in her eyes. She was able to walk, albeit slowly and uncertainly. Vembra and Nargai drew back, motioning that she and Feriam should precede them. But Feriam, sensing their intent to slay him as soon as his back was turned, obeyed unwillingly and looked desperately about for something that he could seize as a weapon. One of the metal braziers, full of smoldering coals that was at his feet, he swooped quickly, lifted it in his hands, and turned upon the necromancers. Vembra, as he had suspected, was prowling towards him with an upraised sword, and was making ready to strike. Ferium hurled the brazier and its glowing contents full in the necromancer's face. Vembra went down with a terrible, smothered cry. Nargyle, snarling ferociously, leapt towards to assail the defenseless youth. His scimitar gleamed with the wicked luster, and in the lurid glare of the urns as he swung in the baton. His scimitar gleamed with the wicked luster, and the lurid glare of the urns as he swung in and swung it back for the blow. But the weapon did not fall, and Ferium, steeling himself against the impeding death, became aware that Nargai was standing beyond him, as if petrified by the vision of some Gorgarian specter. 
As if compelled by another will than his own, the youth turned and saw the thing that had halted Nargyle's blow. Octilia and Abantha, pausing before the door, were outlined against a colossal shadow that was not wrought by anything in the room. It filled the portals from side to side. It towered above the lintel, and then, swiftly, it became more than a shadow. It was a bulk in the darkness, black and opaque, and somehow blinded the eyes with a strange dazzlement. It seemed to suck the flame from the red urns and fill the chamber with a chill of utter death and voidness. Its form was that of a worm-shapened column. It was as huge as a dragon, its further coils still issuing from the gloom of the corridor. But it had changed from moment to moment, swirling and spinning as if alive and the vortical energies of dark eons. Briefly, it took the semblance of a demonic giant with eyeless heads, oh. with eyeless head and limbless body, and then leaping and spreading like smoky fire, it swept forward into the chamber. Abnon Thaw fell back before it, with frantic mumblings of maldictation and exorcism, but Arctilia, pale and slight and motionless, remained full in its path, and while the thing enfolded and enveloped her with hungry flaring until she was hidden wholly from view, Barium, supporting Elioth, who leaned weakly on his shoulder as if about to swoon, was powerless to move. He forgot the murderous Nagai, and it seemed that Elioth were but faint shadows in the presence of embodied death and dissolution. He saw the blackness grow and wax with the towering of fed flames as it closed about Octilia, and he saw it gleam with eddying hues of somber irises, and with the spectrum of a sabled sun. For an instant, he heard the soft and flame-like murmuring, and then quickly and terribly, the thing ebbed from the room. Octilia was gone, as if she had dissolved like a phantom on the air, born on a sudden gust of strangely mingled heat and cold. Then came an acrid odor. Such would rise from a burnt-out funeral pyre. Mordigan, shrilled Nargai in hysterical terror. It was the god Mordigan. He has taken Octilia. It seemed that the cry was answered by a score of sardonic echoes, unhuman as the howling of hyenas, and yet articulate, that repeated the name Mordigan into the room from the dark hall. There poured a horde of creatures whose violet robes alone identified them in Pharaoh's eyes at the priest of the ghoul god. They had removed the skull-like masks, revealing heads and faces that were half anthropomorphic, half canine, and wholly diabolic. Also, they had taken off the fingerless gloves, and there were at least dozens of them. Their curling talons gleamed in the bloody light like hooks of darkly tarnished metal. Their spiky teeth, longer than coffin nails, protruded from snarling lips. They closed in a ring of jackals on Abontha and Nagai, driving them back into the farthest corner. Several others, entering tardily, fell with a bestial ferocity on Vembra, who was moaning and writhing on the floor amidst the scattered coals of the brazier. They seemed to ignore Pharaoh and Alioth, who stood looking on as if in some baleful trance. But the hindermost ear, he joined the assailants of Vembra, turned to the youthful pair, and addressed them in a hoarse hollow voice, like a tomb reverberant barking. Go, for Mordigan is just a god who claims only the dead. He has no concern with the living, and we, the priests of Mordigan, deal in our fashion with those who would violate his law by removing the dead from his temple. Feriam and Eliath, still leaning on his shoulder, went out into the dark hall. Hearing a hideous clamor in which screams of men were mingled with the growling as of jackals and laughter as of hyenas, the clamor ceased as they entered the blue-lit sanctuary and passed toward the outer corridor. The silence that filled Mordigan's fane behind them was deep as the silence of the dead on the black altar table. That has been The Charnel God by Clark Ashton Smith.
Mortigan is a great old one and worshipped by the ghouls. When he appears, all fire and heat is sucked into his swirling void-like body, instantly lowering the temperature by many degrees and filling the area with a deathly cold and still air. All within the presence of the great ghoul are blinded by the weird changing and dazzling form of the necromantic god. Mortigan attacks by engulfing victims, sucking away their life force and dissolving their bodies. Nothing remains of the charnel god's prey, and they are never seen again in the waking world nor in the dreamlands. However, Mortigan does not appear to be especially malevolent. Mortigan was a benign deity in the eyes of the inhabitants of Zalba Sair. Mortigan's priesthood consists exclusively of ghouls, though other races may offer up their dead to the charnel god, but only as appeasement and not as actual worship. Well, that's all there is this week for People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I have been your host, D.B. Spitzer. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe us on iTunes and Stitcher. You can check us out at pgttcm.com, and you can go to pgttcm.podbean.com to find the RSS feed directly. We're on iTunes, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Tumblr, but not really. And, let's see, you can also, don't go to the Patreon, the Patreon's garbage, I don't do anything with it, but do go to the donate button on any website that we have. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, we are also a member of the Dark Myths Collective. Check them out at darkmyth.org. And People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is written and edited and hosted by D.B. Spitzer. Music by Kevin McLeod.